Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Thank you so much for tuning in with me here today, sitting alongside Jeff Gannon. Jeffrey, how's it going? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going for you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, we are going to be in New York. Do you live in New York? Do you want to meet up? with Mr. Jeff and myself, uh, November 11th through the 15th to learn a little bit more about the managed accounts or the investment fund that we are launching on January 1st of 2020. Uh, reach out to me, info at focuscompounding.com. We are going to be there for a week and we would love to uh, meet up with you and chat about what we're doing. Also, if you are watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. And uh, if you're listening on the podcast side of things, leaving a rating or review goes a very long way. Okay. So mm-hmm. in uh, two videos ago, we did a video on um, how to make buy and hold really work for you. The okay. only way to really outperform, yeah. right? And we talked a lot about that. And I thought, or you thought, we're going to pull another video from the poll that I ran on Twitter okay. about different topics. And if you want to um, be able to contribute to that in the future, follow me at Focus Compound. But this topic is why buy and hold rarely works. Mm-hmm. So first we talked about how do you make it work. Yeah. And now we're going to talk about why it rarely works. And then portfolio turnover, the Warren Buffett way versus the Peter Lynch way. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously... Uh, Peter Lynch, he wrote two books, one up on Wall Street and is it Beating Beat, the, Beat the Street? Yep, yeah. both great books. I got one of them, maybe both of them. I got Beating the Street right there. Mm. Um, you know, but both of them, obviously, they run their portfolios totally different. Mm. Warren Buffett is more concentrated. Peter Lynch was much more, um, I guess you could say, diversified among his yeah. holdings. And um, Peter Lynch was also always going to see these companies in person. I don't mm. know how often Buffett does that. Not often you at know, all. Not often at all. Mm. So they both, uh, you know, uh, I guess you could say, ran their portfolios a little bit differently, but yeah. both have performed incredibly well. Right. So let's just maybe compare and contrast and then talk about, you know, which way you think is better. Sure. So the reason for picking those two names is that Peter Lynch one time said that if he had been even better at his job, his portfolio turnover would have been higher. Yeah. And, and Buffett has said that his favorite holding period is forever. So you have the idea that that uh, turnover is good from the Peter Lynch perspective, and the Buffett perspective is that turnover is bad, sort of from those quotes. Yeah. Now, in reality, I don't think either one of them would ever say that. I don't think Peter Lynch really believes that higher portfolio turnover is necessarily better, or that Buffett believes that um, lower portfolio turnover is necessarily better, if, unless you know what you're doing. Uh, you know. Sure. So why, what Peter Lynch was saying is basically he thought if you find as more stocks than anyone else, you look at them, and then you replace the stocks that you own with whatever's better, the story that you've learned that's that's better by these company visits and those sorts of things, um, then you keep moving into better and better stocks because uh, you're finding something that can replace something you have now in it. Uh, Buffett focuses on really good businesses, and it makes sense to hold for the long term. I did a podcast uh, interview on the DIY Investing Podcast, and I said that um, I don't think that really, really low portfolio turnover 
uh, is the most efficient. Now, why is so, that? Right. So I was saying, like, even if you look at the case of Buffett, his annualized returns would probably be highest over like ten years, not beyond that, even in his best investments. So, like Coke or something, he probably should have sold about ten years into it or something. And like he's that. publicly said that. Yeah, that got to a crazy price. But even something like Washington Post or something like that, which had good returns over a long period of time. Um, it had great returns in the first 10 years or so. So a lot of his investments that were really smart um, that he held for a long term uh, still had very good returns annualized over the f first 10 years. So if he could have found something to replace it with that was as good, then he should have. You know, Now his situation is a little different because he keeps adding to the amount of assets that he has to manage. Yeah, sure. And so that became a problem. But say, you know, for the people listening to this, that's not their situation. So if they bought Coke, should they have sold it 10 years later? I would say yes. If you bought Coke in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, you should have sold it at the late 90s and found something better to replace it with. Um, in many cases, I think if you bought what Buffett bought and held for 10 years or something, you probably should have sold and then moved on to something else yourself personally. Now, he has a different situation than you do. Yeah. Now, let's compare that to Peter Lynch, right? Mm -hmm. Who hit the way that he managed it, like I said, was he owned a lot more stocks, mm -hmm. probably a lot more smaller companies. Yes. He was running the Magellan Fund for Fidelity, which yeah. wasn't even that big of a fund. I don't when he think. took over, it was tiny. And when he left, like, 13 years, I forget exactly how many years later, it was huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so he was obviously able to look at a bunch of different ideas. Yeah. You know, than Buffett was, which could explain, obviously, the portfolio turnover and everything. And, and mm -hmm. when you do own more stocks like that, you do probably have to turn it over as much as possible, right? Yeah. So he, I think, owned tons of companies that people always talk about how many total he owned. Yeah. I think he owned a lot of very small positions. And the reason for that is to follow the companies that when you own them, then you'll follow them better. Yeah. And he was really into, like we said, company visits and things like that. And so you would find what's the sort of better story right now, what's the more attractive stock, and then move into that. And I think that's why his turnover was high. And I think that's the best reason to have high turnover is that it makes a lot of sense to have high turnover because you found something better to replace the stock with uh -huh. yeah which is the only time that we actually sell stocks in general too correct but our turnover i would say tends to end up being more the peter lynch type than the warren buffett mm -hmm. um now i don't know peter lynch i think had extremely high turnover in his first couple of years if i remember right um but i actually think warren buffett had pretty high turnover in the 70s the, if i remember yeah, right yeah. yeah in the period where the stocks were getting really cheap um and i've said before that i had very high turnover uh in like uh right after the crash um, because I would sell one thing that was cheap and really good to buy something that now was cheap and was a great company. You know, like now there's something that was at 10 times. So first I bought something at 10 times free cash flow that was, um, you know, a really good company or whatever. But now I could buy something at 10 times free cash flow that was like a monopoly, you yeah, know, sure. because that's what was happening in those for a few months. It was only like three or four months that that happened. But I'd just, you know, sell more of one thing to buy another that way. Um, uh, I remember selling some Berkshire Hathaway to buy more um, IMS Health because it got really cheap, and that was something that was like you know a very attractive business. So that happens in times when prices are falling a lot that way that you want to increase the turnover probably. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then what about um, you know why does buy and hold rarely work? Because it's a mistake to own for the long term most stocks. So most stocks are a mistake. Um, you shouldn't own them. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> in indexes, you know, we talked about in that one that indexes work, but they work disproportionately because of certain yeah. stocks performing well. So on average, you don't want to own a random group of stocks. So a big thing about turnover is the, the issue with turnover for like Peter Lynch, and this is why I think Peter Lynch did well. 
high turnover is not actually a problem, but low selectivity is a problem. So if you had very high turnover, but you were working 24 hours a day, learning everything you could about every company, visiting every company, never taking a day off, never um, you know taking your mind off investing, theoretically, you could have much higher turnover than other people do because you'd be just as selective as some of the best investors in terms of how much work you were putting into each stock that you decided to buy. Yeah. The problem with high turnover that for the average person is they're turning things over, meaning that they have a high level of activity buying and selling things, while also having a low level of actual work going into thinking about stocks. So that ratio is the really important thing. You do not want to think very little about stocks and act a lot. But Peter Lynch was thinking a lot about it and acting a lot about it. I mean, he had kept a crazy schedule that way, mm-hmm. you know. And so, and and Buffett is a really extreme example of that because he's focused on it all the time, and yet he rarely does anything. And mm-hmm. that's the most likely way to get really good decisions, obviously, is if you spend a ton of time learning about things and actually doing very, very little. Mm-hmm. And I guess we talked about that a little bit in the Snap Judgments episode that mm-hmm. went up a couple you know, days ago, how he's able to do that. Yeah, right. right. How he's able to... Um, you know, make decisions within five minutes, mm-hmm. you know, I guess size the company up, you know, relatively right. quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and, and for often the best decisions that you're going to make for selling one stock and buying another that way are on things that are fairly quick. It's like a five minute thing. So it's a rare opportunity that you get. And like you just, you see about. the opportunity right away. You see the opportunity and you do it. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and because the really great things are usually that ob- obvious that quickly. Yeah, yeah. There's something that's like really attractive and really cheap or something like that. I mean, Buffett had very high turnover in his own personal portfolio from what we know um, when he was like in the 50s and stuff. So, uh, and then he would have had higher turnover in the in the partnership than uh, he would later in, in his time with Berkshire. But in his personal portfolio, he would like sell Geico and buy something that was even cheaper. I, th- I don't remember if he said that he sold Geico to buy uh Western Insurance or whatever that company was. But basically, he sold Geico to buy something that was a single-digit PE type company. Mm-hmm. You know? No, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm just saying that, yes, that <laughs> to sell a company that's trading at 10 times earnings to find a perfectly decent company trading at two times earnings, yeah, you should have, if you can keep doing that, you should have 100% portfolio turnover. Was Peter Lynch always fully invested? Uh, as far as I know, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So then if you had to, I guess, construct like a, a game plan for everybody listening mm-hmm. on the way that they should look to structure their portfolio, but right. the way that they should also think about, you know, concentration, uh, turnover, and mm-hmm. all things related to that, what advice would you give? Okay. My advice would be to focus on stocks that you could own forever, basically. Now, I would not use forever. I think 10 years is fine. It's easier to do the math and to, to think realistically about So you that. value them based upon... What, what it would look return. like in 10 years. I, I think you should value it as if you were going to hold every stock you buy for 10 years. Okay. I really do. I think the average person should not think, should not read those write-ups and things that say, so here's what's going to happen and next year their earnings are going to be better and they're going to have this multiple yeah, and that's yeah, why yeah. you're going to sell uh-huh. or three years or whatever. I really think you should look and say, okay, if I buy a Bank of America today and have to hold it for 10 years, what return will I get holding it for that whole time? And then selling at a you know a, a multiple that you pick, a reasonable multiple. Let's say you think it's fifteen times earnings or yeah. whatever in ten years. Mm-hmm. Plus you got the dividend and the growth and whatever in that time period. So do the calculation for ten years. So that's what I think you should focus on. What assets to own should be those that look attractive over ten years. Yeah. Okay. But then in terms of turnover, I think you should be perfectly okay with selling something that you um, feel less comfortable with or that offers a lower return. Than what you're switching into. 
So I don't think that you should target low turnover once you've done that first part, which is thinking that you're going to buy things to own them for 10 years. I think that once you do that, if a stock goes up 100% in one year, I think it's fine to get out of that and into something that's cheaper. Um, well, I don't think you should go get out of something just because it went up 100%. Yeah. And I've said, like, I think the average person probably should not be holding cash. I really wouldn't suggest the average person decide to hold some cash or not cash or whatever. They should only sell to buy something else. So, like, on your watch list, you should have a batting order, if you will, yes. and rank them from one to how big your portfolio is. Mm -hmm. And be constantly ranking them based upon the price and what's going on, right. which ones that you like. And then, let's say you own 10 stocks. You know, obviously, the one you like the most is number one. And then the one you, you like the least is number 10. Mm -hmm. And then you have your actual lineup, I yeah. guess you could say, mm -hmm. of maybe 20 or 30 different companies. And then the first one in your lineup should theoretically replace number 10 on your on your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So you keep those two lists and you have the list, which is the portfolio with the one that you know that you'd be the first one to sell. Yeah. And we know that and we keep that all the time. So we know which stock, if we found something good, would be the first to go. Yeah. The thing you want to be careful about, I think, is a lot of times you're thinking, well, I'd really like to kind of get rid of this. It's kind of expensive or whatever. So let me buy something else to replace it with. And I would really try to avoid making that decision. Mm -hmm. try, just sit on what you have until you have a really good idea that you know on its own is a really good idea. So you're, you're saying don't sell it just because it's run up a ton unless yeah. you have a new idea that you like better, that's cheaper, et cetera, right. to put in the And portfolio. most people are going to switch too much. They're going to switch way too much. So I really think you always want your the buy decision to drive your selling. I really think that you want to say this is such a great idea that I have. I feel so comfortable with it. It's going to have such high returns, whatever. That is going to come in and replace something that I, I want to get rid of. Very often I get people talking to me who say, oh, I really need to find something to buy because I'd like to sell this stock. Yeah. And I think that's not a good way to think mm -hmm. about it. Because I guess you're just opening up yourself to making errors, right? Yeah. yeah and There's a make, lot of biases that could go into that decision. Yeah, and to make the worst error you can make, which is to pick the wrong asset. Yeah, sure. See, price is important, but picking the wrong asset, buying a not good company or risky company, whatever, and taking out a company that you have that's good is a much bigger potential risk long term. So you want to be very careful that you always pick the right kinds of companies, that you pick the Buffett type companies. Yeah. You know, you don't have to have his type of long term holding in it, but, uh, his attitude towards portfolio turnover, but you do want to take his attitude towards catastrophic risk and quality and things like that. What are your thoughts on averaging up? Which a lot of managers uh, yeah. say is one of the hardest things to do. But yeah. in theory, if you have a business that's proving mm -hmm. to work out, shouldn't that make people um, a lot more comfortable with the investment? Now, uh, obviously, yeah. price is a huge component of it, right? There's great right. businesses and then there's great investments, two totally different things. Right. But what are your thoughts on that? So that's an interesting one. Um, compared to most value investors, we average down less, but yeah. we also don't really average up that much because we tend to buy more at one time than other than other investors I would say do. I think we tend to have a more standard position size and just to the extent we can get the shares we do that. Uh, on the other hand and, and to explain yeah. that we don't buy like 5% and then wait a couple quarters it's it's a, it's a snap decision if It's you a will. snap decision if, for us to buy however yeah. because of our size relative to the size of some of the stocks we're buying we may be buyers of the stock for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, we may yeah. it may take a little bit to get in but when we buy we make the decision it's going to be a full position and then when we sell it yes. may take time to sell based on how we place our bids and whatever, but we're not going to be like, oh, we're going to sell 5% here, 5% there. No, right. it's, it's in, it's out. Yeah, and most people listening to this 
uh, really could also just carry that out right away. Yeah. Because you could get in or out of a position in many stocks in like a day or something, whereas we can't realistically. Um, so, yeah, I think that the, the averaging up thing is interesting because what happens is people anchor on our We price. could get out. We just choose to kind of play the, the, the bid and ask a little bit different. I wanted to oh, add you, that, I wanted if, that part. We could get out. We could, we we could get out if we sold at what they wanted us yeah, to sell. So yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. just, we're in no hurry. I just wanted to add that part. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I don't know that there, I, I'm not opposed to the idea of averaging up. Right. I'm actually, I guess I am opposed to the idea of averaging up or averaging down in the sense that I don't think uh, you should be thinking in those terms, really. I think you should be thinking, okay, is the stock still below the price at which I would buy it? Then I'll buy more. You know, it, When I analyze a stock, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'd be happy to buy this at any price less than tangible book value, let's say, okay? And the stock's trading at um, 75% of tangible book value. Okay, well, am I averaging up if I buy at 75, it goes to 85, it goes to 95? Yeah, yeah I am. But I was always thinking I would be happy to buy it up to tangible book. Mm -hmm. So as long as it's below that and it's rising, I'm okay buying it. But if it was falling, I'd be okay buying it too. Well, it was kind of like with NACO, for example, mm -hmm. right? When you buy it in the area of $30, yeah. right? And then it goes up to $50 a right. share. And you're mm -hmm. like, I mean, is it is it still good to put new money in? Well, it's like, right. well, it's still trading at a single-digit PE. It's still a yeah. great business that's growing a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. So I think you, if you think about it from the perspective, if you were to just come in today without owning a position would you still want to buy it mm -hmm. which would allow you to think through is it cheap is it a good business that's a good way to approach it yeah as opposed to well i'm already up 50 percent. do i want to add right. more to it is this gonna because then you're thinking more about in my opinion like the actual return instead yeah. of like it's a good business at a cheap price you know yeah blah, blah, blah. Well, i mean we've talked a little about this before but i mean i don't think in those terms at all in terms of uh how much you're up in a stock or what the average price that you have in it is, or any of that stuff. I don't think that matters. I don't think that I, I have no reluctance at all if I decide that I don't want a stock or found something better to sell at a small loss. And yeah. I know that bothers a lot of people. Yeah. But well, why don't you just wait till break even? <laughs> why don't you? Yeah, yeah. It, does, it yeah. doesn't matter where I bought it. I mean, you're getting the same thing. Your choice now is switching out of this stock into something else. That's the opportunity cost, and that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Nothing else matters about it. What I bought it at before, what I sell it at, doesn't matter. I mean, it. You know, it's. When we make a decision about um, uh, something that's up a lot, right, it, you're still judging against what it can do in the future. And the fact that you owned it and it went up really does not matter. You know, it's just something that should not enter into the thinking at all. And I feel like thinking in terms of averaging up and averaging down brings people more to that kind of thinking about like what their price is in it and what they should be doing. Like, is it okay that I'm buying it as it's going up? It's okay to buy a cheap stock at any time. You know, if it's if it's an attractive stock, then just keep buying it. You know, it's okay. I mean, if we owned a company, we'd be happy if they kept buying back their shares. Mm -hmm. So we should be happy yeah, to be right? buying their shares. Yeah, we don't say, <laughs> yeah, oh, they're no averaging one, no up. No one talks about in that perspective. You know, <laughs> you know, they shouldn't be averaging up, and but their buyback. Yeah, yeah. that's that's so funny. That's so true. <laughs> well, it's kind of like when Buffett bought Apple, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was averaging up on that company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now there's a point at which you don't want to be doing that and, and we don't i mean i've been asked before like do we have any aspect of momentum in our in our uh, investment philosophy or anything and no we don't at all even though that's shown in some certain statistical things and stuff to be effective the way that value investing quality investing and stuff is we don't do that so we wouldn't be buying more of a stock because it is going up that doesn't give us any more confidence in the stock but as long as it was below the price that we were willing to pay we would keep buying it as it rose and we keep buying it as it fell it really wouldn't matter yeah, yeah. and we kind of have a i guess you could say a yard stick of okay so if company gets to this we, we know 
that we would not want to keep on. Right. Yeah. Now, of course, when you're, we talked a little bit about this, when you're carrying out the actual um, decision to trade it and stuff, you want to be doing it in a way that makes sense for you to get the best price, which is placing limit orders at reasonable levels and waiting a while to see what happens. You're not necessarily just going to rush out there and be buying at market prices all the, all the way up that way. But the fact that you're willing to buy at much higher prices doesn't mean that you're offering in the market to act, you're bidding in the market to actually buy at really high prices. It just means that you will keep doing it. Yeah, you know that. Yeah. So getting back to I guess the portfolio for mm-hmm. all the listeners. Yeah. So Buffett type of companies think in terms of owning it for ten years. Yeah. If the return happens quicker, obviously you don't yes. need to hold it for ten years. So think in terms of replacing the stocks with only better stocks. So yes. have that watch list. Right. Absolutely. What yeah. else? Uh, the other thing is that could cause portfolio turmoil, which I think is fine, is to be very quick getting out of things that you made a mistake with. I think that there's, you should have no hesitation to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so once you realize that you've made a mistake, which is usually a mistake in terms of the the asset, it's not going to be a mistake in terms of, oh, I paid a little bit too high price. I would say like capital yeah. allocation changes. Yeah. Stuff like that. Capital allocation yeah. changes, management changes. Your understanding of the business was wrong in some way. A lot of things could change. And then you should just you should be willing to sell. Um, what about quickly. what about taxes? That seems to be a common yeah. thing when it comes to portfolio turnover. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think that are I think taxes that, good because that means you're making money. <laughs> I think that people should do the math on it. Is what I would always encourage. Yeah. Here's the here's the problem, and this happens in all sorts of things where people have to do this math. It. <laughs> The idea should be to maximize your after-tax results. Totally. It should not be to minimize your taxes. Those aren't the same thing. And for a lot of people, there's a certain pain to paying a tax or paying anything, paying any you know extra price on anything um, that, that shouldn't matter. It's just the total cost of it that matters. So in this case, we're talking about a return in something. It's your total return that you get out of it. So absolutely, there are going to be cases where like um, – Thing where you pay different taxes based on if you cross a certain date threshold or whatever. And if you're relatively close to that, then it's going to make a lot of sense to wait to a certain time to sell or to sell before the, that time in the reverse situation in terms of your loss versus a gain. But um, in a lot of other cases, that may not matter that much. Now, I don't think it's that important because I think people overstate the importance because, first of all, the time where it would be most important in the United States will be a year. And I think we're not usually making turnover decisions that quickly. Um, you know, stocks, I mean, regardless of taxes, how often do you think we'd sell a stock within a year buying it? Not often. If the, if we were right about the stock? Yeah, I would say if we were wrong. <laughs> if we were wrong, we might. Yeah. But do, how often would we take a gain in the first year, do you think? Not, we wouldn't. That seems really low to yeah, me, sure. really low likelihood. Now, it's not impossible. Yeah, we could buy we something. But we're, I we're mean, not, we could be lucky up. enough to buy something that goes say, up 300%. And, and I was going to say, it'd probably be a good thing if we did, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> I mean, in, in the late 1990s, that happened to some stocks and things. It can happen. Um, but generally, it's not going to with us. So I don't think it matters that way. And then it's just a question of if you want to take the tax and then buy something that's better. Um, yeah, I mean, so by not taking the tax, you're deferring paying the tax, which is sort of giving you a float, as Buffett would say. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But it's float that's locked into whatever the return is in the stock that you're in. Now, if the expected return in the stock is really high still, it can make sense. But if the return in the stock is not expected to be high, it makes no sense to do this. So putting off taking a gain in something that you don't think is a real compound or something is really not smart. I could see cases where you would say that it would be a good idea not to, to avoid a tax in something and something that you think will compound at really good rates for a long time in the future. 
Um, so like something that's, you know, has a bit higher PE now you were thinking about selling it, but it's a great business that's going to compound in its intrinsic value and double digits and stuff. Yes, it could make sense because you could keep putting off that tax for a really long time. But realistically, if you bought some asset play, it doubled and then you're saying, oh, I don't want to take the tax. That's not smart because although you're not paying the tax on it, it's locked into a return that isn't that good going forward. So, yeah. it, I mean, we don't want to get into whole, working out the whole net present value of it and stuff, but it just doesn't make sense. The only advantage is to be getting a you know loan from the government, as Buffett would say, that you can invest at a high rate of return. So it has to be a good business that you would plan to hold for a long time. Deferring for a short time in something that doesn't have a high return isn't going to be helpful. Yeah, yeah. So there's always <laughs> this like, so I guess in the investing world, there's like these little sayings, right? Yes. Like one of them is, you don't go broke, take it a profit. Yes, okay, which dumb is not saying, a favorite whatever. of okay. mine, yeah. Um, but this other one that people, I don't know if it's necessarily the same, but okay. the way that they manage their portfolio is, oh, if you go up, you know, 10% or yeah. you go up, let's say 100%, yes. they arbitrarily sell the position or like right. they cut it back and then you're playing with house money, yes. essentially. Yes. <laughs> what, is your, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, my thought on that, I don't like that. Yeah. I know that uh, Peter Kundal did that and I have an idea of why he did it. Um, I think that for the, uh, the for people that he reported to who were directors of the fund or whatever, things like that, for anyone that he had to answer to, uh, that was always an answer that they, they were fine with. Yeah. So if you get overly concentrated in something, so like we bought a stock at like 20% or something went up, uh, of our portfolio, it performed better than other stocks, so it became 40% of our portfolio. If we cut it to 20%, yeah. then if we had an investment committee that had to sign off on these things, they would say, at 40%, they'd say, oh, maybe you should just get rid of that stock entirely. But once you cut it back to 20% again, and so you've taken your gain, they'd say, oh, well, that's fine. You can hold that indefinitely. Right? Money. Yeah. I think it's a way to convince people uh, to keep a stock that you wanted to keep anyway. Yeah. I think. I really do. So, I mean, I think it's easy to sell other people on the idea. And it may even be able to sell yourself on the idea. Like, you really want to keep a stock, but you're getting nervous that it's becoming too big a por portion of your portfolio yeah. or something. You cut it back, and then you get to keep it. Now, there's, there's other stuff. Remember our interview with um, Arco Capital, mm -hmm. Peter Rabover, and yeah. he was talking about Valiant, for example, how they had, I can't remember the exact, maybe 6% of their portfolio right. on it. And whenever it would get up to, say... I don't know, 15% because they mm. owned it from a very long time. Yeah. They made a lot of money on it. But so, and I'm just throwing numbers out there from what he right. said. You know, it goes 15%, they would pair it back to six. You know, go 15, pair it back to six. And they did right. that for years. Yes. So when the whole debacle happened, it wasn't catastrophic for them as opposed to like what it was Sequoia. for Sequoia. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's correct. And it's a way to do it. Um, I think it's crazy because I think you shouldn't have being in valiant <laughs> i mean i think the answer is you shouldn't be in valiant if if you shouldn't be in some if something's going to be a big portion of your portfolio and you think it's risky in some way you shouldn't own it you shouldn't own it at all i mean that but they did it maybe more so for portfolio management purposes I, as opposed to like like separating that out from the business being a business like analyst yeah for example I, it was more so from like a portfolio manager's perspective and managing the portfolio Yes. Is the way that he explained it. Absolutely. And, and there's two different styles, whatever. So yeah. we don't need to get into that. But yeah, no, no, no. But, and it. that makes a lot of sense. And you could do that. Valiant, uh, the performance of Valiant was such that if you had kept selling it back, then you'd be successful that way. Yeah. But I also believe that Bill Miller kept selling back Amazon. He would have had to in a, a mutual fund. It wouldn't have been possible to, to just hold the stock that he got in. Uh, but we in, like to say that they wrote it to... Uh, like single digits or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but so he's... As far as I know, I could be wrong. I think... Bill Miller, in some form, in some vehicle that he's managed, has owned Amazon since basically the time Amazon went public. Yeah, yeah, he's owned them for a long time. Well, yeah. if he had just owned Amazon and never sold the shares, the returns would have been better. Sure, yeah. Yeah, a lot better. I guess it's probably harder, obviously, when you're managing money. 
for other people. It is harder, yeah. Because not only you're managing the portfolio, you're trying to manage expectations as well, the way that they view things, them not fleeing because you're running a business itself, yeah, absolutely. as opposed but to I the mean, way that you do it for yourself. Yeah, but I just mean if you're investing in a business that ends badly like Valiant, yeah. then trimming it back all the time is going to make sense. If you invest in a business that's never going to end badly yeah. like Amazon, then trimming it back never makes sense. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. I mean, it's a it's that issue of whether you should sell for that reason. Uh, yeah. Mutual fund things don't really have that choice. They're, they're going to have to do it. They're going to have to trim it back. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then would you have made more money just holding Amazon the whole way or taking the catastrophic loss in Valiant of what it would have made up on your portfolio? Uh, yeah, I could Amazon. do, uh, yeah, I, I was gonna say I could do the math on, um, what if you bought Valiant and Amazon both, you held them both the whole time. My guess without doing the math right now is that, uh, you do really, really well because yeah. you can afford to do that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I actually remember doing that when I was thinking about some things in China. I was like, well, one of one or two of these three could go to nothing. But actually, if you do the math at these prices, if you bought all three and assume two of them go to nothing, but the third one has the whole market, you know, it works out. And to be fair, Valiant is now Bosch and Lom or whatever. I mean, they're yeah, still yeah, no, around. It, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, same. it's still around, yeah. They're not in bankruptcy, so yeah. Yeah, no. But um, uh, so I think, yeah, I think... But... For us, and this may be different for other people, but for us, I think it's very important to uh, not avoid, um, uh, to not think that this thing's risky, so we'll own a very small amount yeah, of it. Yeah. Other people disagree with that, but I think that you erode your uh, uh defenses against risk in your own mind and stuff when you start to think it's acceptable to own something at two percent of your portfolio that you want to own at 20 mm-hmm. you know i really do so i think the best thing is just to keep out things that once you realize they're risky in a way you didn't know that they were originally you should just sell them off entirely yeah so to summarize yes stick to buffett type businesses yes be okay with quick turnover yes um don't manage for after-tax returns mm-hmm. or for like performance as opposed to yeah. minimizing taxes right um what else we got here yeah i mean i I would sum it up by saying you want to uh buy like you're gonna have 10 percent turnover yeah and then you hope that you get 100 percent. yeah because then you're yeah be willing to have 100 percent turnover but always plan as if you would need to have 10 percent. yeah only sell when you have a new idea have a batting list absolutely uh, lineup of companies that you like yeah that is good Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. As I said in the beginning of the video, we are going to be in New York. So if you're interested to learn about our money management services, reach out to me, info at focuscompounding.com. We will be there November 11th through the 15th. Um, and we would love to obviously meet with you. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, pumping out five videos a week and follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.